in ways beyond which I can fathom and in greater ways than I could ever produce, would you literally become a witness of the resurrected Lord in my life? That would demonstrate it when I'm asleep and demonstrate it when I'm awake, would demonstrate it when I'm on the street, would demonstrate it when I'm in the church, would be demonstrated at the school, would be demonstrated at the job, would be demonstrated in youth, would be demonstrated in old age, that I would be a witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make that my life, I pray thee. And all of us together, in Jesus' name we ask it, amen. amen. A lame beggar who's been one for 40 years, over 40 years of age, has suddenly been healed. Uh, he's been there for all that time. Uh, he's worked his way up to the top spot of begging at the gate beautiful at the temple. Everybody in Jerusalem knows him. Jesus has walked by him, didn't heal him. Peter and John have walked by him dozens of times, didn't heal him. There was no healing going on. At this particular occasion, in Acts chapter 3, the man is made well. A miracle has come to him. God never does a miracle without purpose. And the purpose in the passage seems to be that this is going to form the basis of the persecution. All of Jerusalem is going to, get, uh, is going to be talking about it. The Sanhedrin is going to be all bent out of shape. And they're going to come down hard on the apostles. And this is going to be the beginning of persecution. The miracle was not for the purpose of making the man, the, the man able to walk. The miracle was not for the purpose of uh, making him feel better. The miracle was not for the benefit of him. The miracle was for the benefit of the plan of an almighty God. Every miracle has that as its base. The plan of an almighty God, which is phenomenal. So the miracle has taken place, persecution has now been launched, Sanhedrin has pulled them in, and the whole focus of the persecution is on the name of Jesus. It's all about the name of Jesus. It's all about this person of Jesus. This is the issue. Don't care what you do with your suppers. Don't care how you handle your worship. Don't care whether you sing choruses, whether you sing hymns. Don't care whether you raise your hands or don't. What we care about is shut up about Jesus. The whole issue is about the person of Jesus Christ. Never mention his name again. That's what they're against. They come back, of course, to the early church, and in the, as they report to the early church what's happening, that the threat of death is upon them over the name of Jesus, the early church launches into a praise prayer session that has at its content the awareness of the sovereignty of God. In fact, in the passage, it starts the prayer, and you can see this in verse 23, 24. It start, they start their prayer with, Lord, you are God, and we have studied that. It literally is, the, that whole phrase is the translation of, the, of our word, despot. It is a tyrant. They have looked at God and said, you are a tyrant. Nothing gets by you. You are absolutely in sovereign and absolutely in control. In fact, as they go on and describe that, they say, hey, you have literally reached out and herded together the entire world. You've got a hold of the leadership of the world, the Herods. You've got a hold of the Pontius Pilots. You've literally herded them all together. And you have literally brought all the Gentiles and all the Israelites together. And you put them all on a platform. And you looked at them, God, sovereign tyrant God, and said, hey, 
do what you want to do. And they did exactly what they wanted to do, which is exactly what you wanted them to do because you were in charge. And they crucified Christ. Yay, you had your way again because you are a tyrant, overwhelming God, and everything falls into this plan that you have and this is your plan. So the crucifixion of Jesus is right solidly in the middle of the will of God himself as he herded the world together to accomplish his sovereign plan. They burst into praise and said, Oh, could it be then that we are an extension of that plan and the persecution that we are experiencing at this moment with the threat of never mentioning the name of Jesus again, if that threat of death itself upon mentioning his name, wouldn't it be something if that is an extension of that plan and we are right in the middle of your will? We're not asking for deliverance. We're not asking for you to get us out of this mess. We're not asking for you to remove us from we're not asking for deliverance in that sense we are asking that we would be faithful as we have been up to this moment we would be faithful in the same way the same movement the same power and the same activity of God that we've been experienced we would continue to experience whether the sand Enid is upset or whether they are not and they were filled in verse 31 with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Then he comes to our passage. He is giving a description of ministry. And it's interesting the context in which he gives this description. And we've done three studies on it of the context. It's the context, first of all, of integrity. The ministry of verse 33 flowed through integrity. The platform upon which the power of the message took place that was so impactive was through the impact and the context and the atmosphere of integrity. And it's interesting that they brought up the subject, he, Luke brings up the subject of materialism when he brings up the subject of integrity. Now we know integrity is bigger than materialism, but it's in the physical that integrity plays itself out. And he talked about no one said in, that any of the things he possessed was his own. In fact, it's interesting that if you read verse 32, as we've already discovered at another time, verse 32, and then you go to verse 34, they are connected. And verse 33 is stuck in the middle of it like this whole business of ministry somehow finds its focus, finds its atmosphere, finds its display in the realm of integrity in our materialism. We discovered also it's in the, in the area of uh, involvement because the whole involvement is on the person of Jesus wasn't about anything else. They were all wrapped up in the whole witness is about what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which was not about an event, which was about the person. And the person has been raised from the dead. The person is alive. It wasn't about the event of being raised. It was about the person is alive. That was there. It was a focus on him. So their total involvement was in him and him alone. And a couple of Sundays ago, we talked about the indulgence atmosphere that God is an indulgent God great grace was upon them all wildly go forth and utilize spend waste give away throw away every ounce of grace 
at your disposal. And when you die, you will have not dented the supply a bit. He is indulgent. That's the atmosphere. Now there's a problem with the passage. And I did all of that to get to this problem. It's very easy to get enamored with the wrong thing in the passage. I have a tendency to do that. So I'm assuming you do as well. And it's so easy to get off, for instance, on the materialism. The minute you begin to read this passage, materialism is so strong. And of course, we are such a materialistic, focused people that we immediately begin to say, Oh, that is the platform for ministry. So what kind of rules did they have? What kind of rules should I have about my... There were no rules. They were just doing what was natural inside. And so there was no rule about... And there was no communistic intent in this. There was no communal living. There was no, you got to sell your property and give all your money to me if you're going to be a part of the church. See, there was none of that going on. Some did, some didn't. Didn't have anything to do with any of that. See, don't get enamored with that. That's not the point of the passage. It's easy to get enamored, of course, with the unity. They were of one heart and one soul. And obviously that was a part of the platform of the success of the ministry was the unity. And the unity was in him. We, we understand all of that. And while that is an element, that isn't the focus of the passage itself. In fact, you go on and you can get all wrapped up in the idea of the miracles. Because obviously there were miracles going on. But that isn't the impact of the passage itself. What, what is the core? It's found in this verse 33. And it's found in the ministry that he's describing in verse 33. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That seems to be the focus of the entire passage. And everything else revolves around that. You realize, of course, they've always been selfish in their ministry. They've had ministry for what? Three, three and a half years now. And they've always been selfish in their ministry, these apostles. Uh, for instance, they, uh, two of them, James and John, sons of thunder, came, came to Jesus, got their mommy actually to come to Jesus because Jesus' mother and their mother were sisters. Thus, these are the cousins. They're Jesus' cousins. And they come in, in Matthew chapter 20 uh, asking for the right hand and the left hand position. Hey, in, in ministry, we want to be we want to be top dog. We want to be right hand and left hand. And after all, we're family and, and you owe it to us. And, and, and they were selfish in their approach to ministry. And Jesus had a lot to say about that. And we won't go into that. Uh, you remember they were arguing about, in Matthew 18, about position. Which one of us gets to be, which one of us gets to be number one? When, what? what and they argued among themselves, finally coming to Jesus, demanding that he would satisfy, answer that problem. And yet, it only exposed their selfishness in ministry. The rich young ruler came and obviously went away sorrowfully because he had great riches and wouldn't line up with the requirements of Christ. And Jesus was so moved, he gave a discourse on physical materialism again. And the disciples came up and said, well, Jesus, we've left all to follow you. What are we going to get? 
Isn't it interesting how Christianity quickly becomes, what are we going to get? What's in it for me? And that the whole approach even of ministry is, well, hey, I have a right, but my ministry is, I should get, I can, I, after all I've, after all the church owes, on and on it goes. And the impact is what? That ministry has this selfish element at its core. I was really intrigued. When you come to verse 33, that's missing. Something so radical has taken place within the heart of these apostles that that's all gone. There's no thought of that. There's no indication of that. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if you say, well, where, where, where do you get that emphasis that there's no selfishness in their ministry in this statement? It's in the word gave. Interesting word. Didomai is the normal word. It is the ninth most frequently used verb in the New Testament. Which means it's everywhere. Which means it's fairly shallow. Which means you read it, you gloss over the top of it, you don't think much of it. Because it's just everywhere and used like we use it. Gave, give. So we read this. The great, with great power, with great power, the apostles gave witness. No big deal. Except that's not the word here. Well, it is the word. Well, no, it's not. It's two words put together. This is so phenomenal. Two words put together. Apo and didami. So the word give is there, but it has this apo thing on it. Apo didami. It's used 48 times in the New Testament. Which is not a lot. And if you go to a Greek lexicon and look this word up, it will tell you that the fundamental meaning is pay back. Repay. It has the idea of debt. Obligation. Isn't it interesting that Luke would pick that word out to put here in the middle of ministry? That they were ministering out of, and this sounds negative, out of obligation. Not, oh, I got to obligation, but oh, I am so, I am so indebted. I am so, oh, what else can I do? I have so experienced him in all of his greatness. And all the, the grace, the great grace, and all, whoa, whoa, what, how can I, how can I drag my feet? How can I slough off? How can I give half a witness? How can I say, I got a headache? How? The debt is so big. That's the impact of the statement. 48 times used in the New Testament. 46 of those times all focus on people. 
In other words, they're the action of people, people owing people, that kind of thing. 46 of them. Two of them have nothing to do with people. For instance, one of those two is found in Revelation 22 verse 2. It's about the tree. Listen to this. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was this tree of life. Which bore 12 fruits. Each tree yielding a podidomai. Yielding, giving, debt, obligation. Each tree out of obligation bore its fruit every month. How does that fit into that verse? Obviously, the nature that was flowing within the tree, the very position and location of the tree itself, the very, the very essence of who the, what the, and what the tree was, demanded, demanded, it was a payback, it was, a, it was an obligation, it was a debt to bear fruit. I have to bear fruit. Why? Because of who I am and where I am and I'm obligated. That's the verse. Another place this word is used that has nothing to do with people or a, per, a particular person is in Hebrews. It talks about the discipline of the father. It talks about how the fathers discipline their children. Why do we do it? Out of anger. Why do we do it? We're embarrassed. They acted up in church and everybody saw them and we're embarrassed so we beat the tar out of them. <sighs> Have I done that? So here, you know, it's that kind of, yeah, we discipline for our own personal benefit. But not your heavenly father, he says. He says, your heavenly father, oh let me read you the phrase. Your heavenly father, the discipline of your heavenly father yields a podidomai. Yields. Apodidomai, debt, obligation, yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That the Father, he disciplines you and that discipline literally is obligated to produce in you. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be something that everything God is allowing to come to your life is a discipline to produce in you. It's obligated to produce. Well I don't like that. It's produced. It's obligated to produce in you. Righteousness. So what God is constantly doing. Is literally turning his discipline loose in your life. And kicking you in the direction of godliness. And holiness. And the things that are happening to you. Are absolutely. Obligated. It's a debt. Those two have nothing to do with people. All the rest of 46 of them have to do with people. I'm trying to convince you of the word. Apodidomai. In fact, one place this word is used seven times is in the parable Jesus told. Peter came and said, how many times should I forgive people? Up to seven times? Like, wow, Peter, that's extravagant. Good for you, boy, he thought. But see... To forgive up to seven times, you know what I have to do? Keep track. That's once. I forgive you. That's twice. I forgive you. That's three times. Hey, I'm keeping track. Jesus said, don't keep track. Don't keep track. 
keeping track is out in realm of forgiveness. So it's never how much have I been forgiven? God would have to say, I don't know. Didn't keep track. Wow, that's extravagant, isn't it? And seven times, and then he told this parable. This guy, the master, went off, turned his money over to a steward, and lo and behold, when he came back, he'd embezzled the funds. 2,370,000 with. The guy calls him, and the master calls him in. Pay back! Oh, that's the word. Apodidami. Pay me back! The guy said, I can't pay you back! I don't have that much money! And all the way through the parable, this payback, apodidami word is used. So see, there's no way out of it. This word, when it shows up, is the idea of debt, obligation, payback. Now, bring that into our passage. With great power, the apostles paid back. Paid the debt. We're obligated to witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What's this obligation? Number one. It's the obligation of the plan. Oh. It's the obligation of the plan. Do you see it in the verse? See, the subject of the verse is apostles. Obviously, with great power, the apostles. That's the subject. The main verb is gave, apodidomai, the debt thing. And the direct object, which is the accusative in the Greek, the direct object is witness. So the action of the paying back spilled into and produced and acted upon the witnessing. So the apostles paid back through witnessing. That's the verse. And the interesting thing about the verb, apodidomai, it's in the imperfect tense. Wayne is checking me out. It's in the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense is the idea that it happened in the past and continues to happen and affect into the present. In fact, there's no assessment where it's going to come to an end. In other words, this paying back wasn't... <gasps> got that paid off. Wipe that bill out. Throw that note away. There's none of that here. What's here is, well, hey, I, I, I pay my debt. Yeah, I, I preach every Sunday. I'm a pastor and that's my obligation, so I preach every Sunday. It's not that. It's not, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, so hey, I'm obligated. I have my devotions every morning. It's not that. It's not an event. It's not a particular activity. It's not a once a month payment. It's a continual flow of the human life that literally is, lives in a sense and an atmosphere of phenomenal obligation and debt. It says, whoa, until through their life that constantly kicks into a consistent expression and demonstration 
of his resurrected life. So this is lifestyle. Now couple with that the word power. The word power, you got apostle, that's a subject. Gave is the, is the verb. And witness is the uh, direct object. Then you got this word power over here. Which is an indirect object or a dative. Now it's not a dative of, uh, it's a dative of means. I know this is going to excite you. It's a dative of means, not a dative of instrument. In other words, the instrument by which they did this was the power of God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that there is this power emanating from the presence of God in the human life that becomes the process becomes the course, becomes the means by which this is expressed. In other words, I am so, how would you, how do you describe this? I am so indebted to God. Oh, what can I do to pay him back? He fills me with his power and enables me to pay him. I owe him a hundred thousand dollars. He wrote me a check for 100000 so I could give it back to him and pay him. <laughs> it's that kind of idea. Isn't that phenomenal? That is by the very flow of the power of God himself that I live in the, oh, this deadness that gives forth with this witness that demonstrates his life before my world which spills out of my obligation and I can't possibly pull it off but he gives me the power to pull it off which pays the debt. So you see, the obligation is, oh, you got to get this. The obligation is, I'm living in the plan. And as I live in the plan, this obligation comes to me because the plan, the plan, the plan is so... See, he's a despot. Now put it in the context of the passage. He's a despot. He's a tyrant. And, and Luke says what he did is he reached out and grabbed a hold. Uh, he grabbed a hold of all the nations of the world. Hey, the Gentiles, the Israelites, all the rulers of the world herded them together in a platform and said, hey, do what you want to do. And they did what they wanted to do, which is exactly what he wanted them to do, which is crucify Christ. And that was a plan. And it all planned out. And God is saying, good, you did what I wanted you to do. I knew you would. Because he's a sovereign God who gets done what he wants to get done. Now persecution has come to us and we're fitting into this plan and we have such an indebtedness because we get to be a part of the plan that God has instituted in Christ. Which is a bleed, suffer and die, never think about yourself kind of thing. And here's the plan and we're right in the middle of it. How did I get here? I don't know. Why am I a part of the 120 that was in an upper room? Whoa! Why was I chosen as an apostle? I don't know. But I'm in the plan. Because I'm in the plan. I am so indebted that ministry spills. Folks, God has a plan. We have pounded this, pounded this from this pulpit. We have yelled and screamed it in the jail. 
And I wish I could figure out another way to say it, but I don't, I don't, I don't. See, your DNA is different than anybody else's. Your fingerprints are different than anybody else's. The number of hairs on your head are numbered. God is so focused on you. Look at your face. Nobody looks like you do. <laughs> Mercy. You are one unique dude. Why would God go to all that? There's a plan. There's a plan. There's a plan. And when you get in the middle of the... Do you realize what God has invested in you? Come on, parents. You know, moms gave birth in pain and agony, invested in a child, raised a child, worked for the child, covered the child, protected the child, fed the child, stayed up nights with the child, through sickness and, and through with the child. You invested. Then they get 18 and <laughs> blow you off. Not really. You owe me! I invested in you! You owe me to be happy. You owe me to thrive. You owe me to have your own home. You owe me. I invested all of this in you. Expand that into a sovereign God who before the foundations of the world chose you, designed your DNA, set you up with your personality. And then I come along and say, on God, hey, I... What are you talking about? You, 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 you owe him. Let me read you this psalm. Oh, man, this psalm is so, and you've read it, but it's so phenomenal. L listen to this. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, get this, in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. God has invested in you. Listen to this verse. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Well, preacher, I'm an honest guy. I pay my bills. Oh, good. Get out your checkbook, brother. Pay this one off. Pay this one off. And they saw... The very aspect of ministry, their lives, 
and their witness of the Spirit has some kind of, oh, how did we get here? How, how did, why was I, whoa, why do I know what I know? Obligation of a plan. Number two. Obligation of the person. Did you know the plan is the person? <laughs> yeah, the plan is a person. And the whole plan is what? In the passage, oh, it's all about Jesus. The plan is Jesus. See, the apostle, the apostles is the subject of the sentence. Yeah. And with great power, the apostles gave, apodidomai, the dead thing, that's the verb. Accuse, the accusative, is the witness thing. It's the direct object. So the apostles gave witness, and it was this, this the action of the, uh, of the debt that brought them into the witness. And back here, again, is this power idea. And what is the power? Well, we know what the power is. It's verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The power was not, oh, we've pounded this. Come on. And how can you ever get away from this? You, you, th this, this should be your constant concept and reality. Jesus doesn't have anything to give to you. He is everything. He doesn't give you power. He is the power. See, the relationship with him is never, he invents something, puts it in pill form, hands you the pill, you run off, take the pill, and have a big time. When you run out, come back. That's why we have Wednesday night, because you run out. So you need retanked. So we, we go through this refilling, refilling. That's, that's not the picture. See, he didn't invent anything and hand it to you. You don't have anything apart from him. Everything is in him. So if there's any peace, he's the peace. If there's any power, he's the power. If there's any happiness, any place, he's the happiness. If there's any, if, if there's any wisdom, he's the wisdom. If there's, if, if, if there's any flow, he's the flow. If there's any results, he's the result. He is absolutely down to it. The total, absolute focus of it all. We expressed it in the word iscus, which is a focus on resource. It's the word power, which is a focus on resource. It's a focus on God is powerful. Yes, he is. He himself. Well, what's he doing? Absolutely nothing. Just sitting there. Here's the sovereign God who's absolutely sovereign and powerful just sitting there. Now he goes on the move. That's the word didymus, which is the word used in our passage. It's the action of that resource. So if there's any action going on, where does it come from? See, that's the passage, folks. Here's this group of people that are just about to, get, just about to, hey, they're into persecution, man. They are threatened with their lives. What do they see? They see a sovereign God who's absolutely a tyrant in charge, who herded the whole world together and said, hey, do what you want to do. They crucified Christ, which was exactly what he wanted to have done. And his plan was fulfilled, and they got to become an extension of that plan in the person of Jesus. They they became the fulfillment of the plan of Jesus. How did that happen? Whoa. How did I get into this? Whoa. Why was I so fortunate to? I could have been born by a, in a dozen different countries. Why was I? How did I? 
What I, how did I end up? Whoa. There's a person who has a plan. Operating night and day to fulfill that plan in your life. Well, preacher, I'm an honest guy. Good. Get out your checkbook. <laughs> Pay this debt off. Paul, back in the day, early days, I got intrigued with this statement he made. It's in the first chapter of Romans. Talking about all these pagans, filthy people. And he said, I am a debtor. Both to the Jew and to the barbarian, both to the wise and to the unwise. And then the next verse. You know what the next verse says? So! I'm ready to come to Rome and preach to you. And then when I stand before you in Rome... I will be declaring my indebtedness to the way that God has used every individual. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians, Paul brings up this whole subject of ministers being paid. Talks about the priest. The priest handles the holy things. And then, you know, like the showbread... It's put on the, on the altar and it's there for seven days. Then they bake new showbread and take the old off. The priest gets the old. It's his payment. And he earns the right to eat the holy bread which had been there for seven days and now has been replaced. And that's his. Well, he earned it. He uses the symbolism of shepherds. Shepherds drink the milk of the flock. Why? They have a right to. Why? They're shepherds. They're shepherds. And they tend the flock. And that's a part of the payment. They're owed. Priests are owed. Shepherds are owed. Then Paul says, Hey, not me. I don't get paid. I don't get paid, he says. And he says this. Listen to this verse. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast. What do you mean by that? Well, I've worked hard and my talent and my ministry has built the biggest church in town and, and that's why I have the big salary and, and the big house. He says, I, I, don't I, I have nothing to boast in that. I don't have the big house and I don't have... I, I, have no, I, don't, I have nothing to boast. But he says this, for I preach the gospel and have nothing to boast of. For, I, for, I, if, 
For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast. For necessity. Absolute requirement. Necessity is laid upon me. Yes. Woe to me. If I don't preach. Because necessity. I'm in debt. It's my compulsion. Would you agree with me dear people? We live in a society that says. You owe me. My hand is out. I'm, you're indebted to me. It spills into the church. The church owes me. Do you know, as an ordained elder in the church of the Nazarene, bless God, I spent over 40 to 50 years in this thing, pouring my life out for the church, and I get this big pension of $350 a month. The church owes me. See, that isn't in the passage. That isn't in... I owe you. That's the passage. St. Teresa amazed me. She died when she was in her early 20s. Spent most of her time in bed. No miracle for her. Most of her time in bed, sick. She said things like, oh God, let me be a rag doll for you. I read that. Turn me off. I don't want to be some, I don't want to be Jesus' red rag doll, I'll tell you that. I want to be a soldier for Christ. Oh, Superman for God. A rag doll. Then she developed it. And said, God, just let me be your rag doll. Just to exist. To please you. Take me and throw me under the bed and I'll be there in darkness for days and days and days and you pay no attention to me at all. Like a child would throw the rag doll aside and not play with it. Just throw me under the bed and in darkness I will live for days and days and days with no blessing. It's all okay. And then you rediscover me and use me again. It's all okay. I exist. For you. That's this passage. Jesus, could my commitment to you be that big? God, forgive me. In the name of Jesus, forgive me. For every time I've belly ached and used you for my own ends. I've made my demands. You owe me, God. How many times, God, have I been in an altar praying with people who were sick in a healing service and the prayer was made, Oh God, you know this saint. They've served you so well and it was all based on the fact that you owed them healing. I want to declare in this hour, you owe me nothing. How did I get here? How did I hear? 
Well, how did the message come to my life? How was I birthed in your spirit? And God, I know I don't owe you and pay you back with a Sunday morning sermon. And it isn't, well, I come on Wednesday night and that's part of my obligation and I pay my debt. That it isn't that kind of deal. It's this somehow, this burning obligation within me of debt. And oh, I owe you. Oh, you're just so big in my life. Everything I've ever had, everything that's ever been good in my life, the plan that I could fit into a divine plan of God that you have destiny for my life, the very purpose for my existence that's come to me. Ooh, I owe you, God. And with a great sense of obligation and indebtedness. Make me a rag doll. If I never experience another blessing, if you never answer another prayer, if I never feel your presence ever again, I've had way beyond my share. I would align my life with these apostles and would let you display yourself through me. God, break us of every selfishness. Break us of every intent of pulling to ourselves. Break us of all that we would find in our carnal flesh. And make us men and women of God marching in the plan. Indebted to, indebted to the tyrant who is fulfilling his dream. And we are so fortunate to be a part of the dream. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Heads are bowed. I invite you to posture yourself today in the position of a debtor. One who finds himself overwhelmed with the investment God has made in you. Listen, 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 listen to it again. Or do you not know that your own body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a great price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Don't be an unruly teenager. that ignores the investment 
of all the Old Testament, all the New Testament, and 2,000 years of church history that has brought truth to your life and a claim upon your living. Don't be an unruly teenager that just blows it off. Like you are not in debt. <laughs> 